my identity as a, as a black woman, uh, especially as somebody who is not a household name. <laughs> there are some people that look at me and think, well, who does she think she is mm-hmm. by asking these, these types of questions? And there is help to pay. There can be help to pay. Welcome to the Vermont Conversation. I'm David Goodman. Journalist Eva McKend is a trailblazer. As an anchor at Vermont CBS affiliate, WCAX-TV, from 2015 to 2018, McKend was the only black female on-air news anchor in Burlington and was among a small number of journalists of color in the state. In 2018, she moved to Washington, D.C. to become an on-air congressional correspondent for Spectrum News, a cable news service. She is a regular guest on the NPR program 1A, and her series of stories on black hemp farmers in Kentucky has won several awards. Her current beat includes covering the Kentucky congressional delegation, which is led by one of the most powerful politicians in America, Senate Minority Leader Mitch McConnell. Her pointed exchanges with McConnell have made national news. McKend got McConnell to confirm that humans exacerbate climate change, got him to declare that he would not be an impartial juror in President Trump's impeachment trial, and challenged him about reparations for slavery, which he emphatically rejected. I began my conversation with McKend by asking her about covering McConnell. Eva McKend, welcome to the Vermont Conversation. Thank you so much for having me, David. Several weeks ago, you confronted the Senate Minority Leader Mitch McConnell with a question about the Senate filibuster, noting that many historians say it is rooted in racism. And you asked whether he was concerned that people would see him as blocking efforts by black people to vote. McConnell replied that the idea that the filibuster had racist roots was nonsense. This exchange captured a role that you frequently take on, confronting one of Washington's most powerful politicians with questions about race and racism. Can you talk a little bit about this? Well, I thought that it was an important and worthy question. Obviously, Republicans and Democrats feel very differently about the history of the filibuster. Republicans argue Democrats are just really confronting the history as a act of political expediency now because they're in the majority. So that's why I I said, you know, it's in dispute because I knew that he wasn't going to agree on that point. But what he couldn't dispute was the perception, was that there are going to be, whether he wants to concede that the filibuster is rooted in in racism or not, there are going to be Black Americans who certainly feel as though uh, it is being used to limit their ability to vote. And so how is he going to confront that? I just think that these are worthy questions. McConnell, in many ways, even though he's the minority leader, kind of runs the show on Capitol Hill, or at least it feels like it, even when he's not uh, in power, so to speak, even though when he, even when he's not in the majority, because he just wields so much uh, weight. And so I think that these are questions that should be asked. And I worry if I don't ask them, they're not going to get asked. And has that been your experience that these kind of questions don't get asked if you're not in the scrum or in the room? They often don't. They often don't because I had sometimes I have questions that when I don't get called on, I hold them to the following week. And they still haven't been asked within that week. 
And I think that sometimes I think that they're not asked in the ways that I would ask them. So following the death of George Floyd, a very prominent reporter said to McConnell, well, what are you going to do about this? African-Americans have been complaining about this issue for years. And I took real concern to the use of complaining. I thought that the better question would be, does he believe that the institutions in America like policing are systemically racist? And what does he need to, what needs to be done to address systemic racism? And so I just, sometimes the question might get asked, but not, I think not in the way that I would ask it. And then of course he responded when I did finally get around to asking that question, he said that the country had residual racism, <laughs> um, but he was uncomfortable saying systemic racism. Does it frustrate you or how does it make you feel that these questions about race and racism fall to an African-American journalist to ask? Um, does that frustrate me? You know, I just I'm so, just so grateful when I have the opportunity to get called on and to be able to ask these questions that need answers. So no, you know, I, I just, I see it as it, it is what it is. And thank God I'm able to be in the room when mm -hmm. I can. Is there ever a penalty to pay when you ask a tough or uncomfortable question? Oh, for sure. Absolutely. I, when I asked Mitch McConnell about reparations, I believe it was in 2019, he didn't call on me for, for quite a long time, maybe about five to six months after that, I didn't get called on again. Now you could say that it was just because there are a lot of reporters at these press conferences or he didn't see me or whatnot, but I definitely, I definitely felt like it was, there was a cool off period, you know. I think and re that remind us what the question was about reparations because it went viral. It dominated the news cycle for some time. Well, the question was, did he feel as though black Americans should receive reparations for slavery? And if not, should there be a public apology from Congress and the White House for the theft of labor? You know, it was the day before Ta-Nehisi Coates was about to come to the Hill for this historic hearing on this issue. Uh, there hadn't been prior to that a hearing held on reparations for over a decade. So it was, it was a huge deal. And it was getting a very legitimate airing with the 2020 Democratic presidential candidates, this concept of reparations. Um, in, in the past, it was sort of dismissed as a fringe conspiracy or a fringe uh, campaign of black radicals. But now, especially in the wake of ta Coates' essay in The Atlantic, The Case for Reparations, a lot of people see the connections now very clearly when it comes to redlining and other issues. And so I thought it was a legitimate question. And many people were taken aback by how robust his response was. Hmm. And I think he and probably his team was taken aback by how the response reverberated. They probably had no idea that uh, that it would it would have such legs. And probably he wished in hindsight that he said, I don't have, he probably wish he would have said, I have no observations on the matter. That's what he'll say when he doesn't really want to answer a question. 
So when you describe the penalties, I mean, that's interesting because often the image one has from afar is reporters are jockeying, physically jockeying to get physically close to ask questions and interrupt. But you're saying, no, it's in McConnell's hands or a powerful politician's hands to select who gets to question him. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. Sometimes these politicians will go to the same reporters. Uh, I have been trying for weeks and months to interview some of these lawmakers that I'm that I'm tasked with speaking with and have not been able to. There is a price to, to, to pay to ask certain questions. I haven't spoken to one lawmaker in over a year and his the last time I did speak with him after the interview, his staff person told me that, you know, this is not a debate. These conversations are not a debate. And so that was a warning to me, right? That was, if we grant you access, you're going to ask what we want you to ask. You're not going to challenge him when he spews off inaccuracies or something worth challenging. And if you don't play by the rules, you won't get access. That is the message. And I think that my identity as a, as a Black woman, uh, especially as somebody who is not a household name, <laughs> certainly in Washington, uh, there are some people that look at me and think, well, who does she think she is mm-hmm. by asking these these types of questions? And uh, and there is help to pay. There is There can be help to pay. <laughs> How does that, does that affect or change how you do the job you're doing? If you're a reporter who can't get access to powerful people, you're in trouble. No, I, I don't. I just, I just stay the course, but it's not easy. You know, it is not easy at all, but I, I stay the course and do what I feel as though needs to be done. Mm-hmm. Um, how did it fall to you to get the Mitch McConnell beat? You know, so I work for a cable news group called Spectrum, and they are in eight states across the country. And I didn't know prior to coming to Washington that I would be assigned to the Kentucky congressional delegation. One of their most uh, famous and noteworthy stations is New York One in New York City. And I was born and raised in New York prior to being an anchor in Vermont. I was a reporter in the Catskills region in the Hudson Valley New York City folks would consider that upstate New York, but upstate New York folks in Buffalo and in Plattsburgh would not consider that upstate New York. Uh, but I was a reporter there for, for two and a half years before Vermont. So um, the thought of my stories landing on New York One was really exciting to me because it has such a huge reach and my family and friends are back in New York. And so that's why I gravitated back to Spectrum. I had worked for them in uh, when I was in the Hudson Valley but no, I had no idea when I got to D.C. that they would actually assign me to the Kentucky congressional delegation uh, made up of eight white men, one Democrat. And of course, among the group is Mitch McConnell. Tell us who he is. We all see him on TV <laughs> and hear him on the radio. What's he like? I think what you see, <clears throat> what you see is what you get that how he, you know, he's not uh, warm or uh, long-winded. He's, 
I think maybe by his own admission, calculated and strategic, that he often thinks deeply about his responses. I think maybe now, especially after winning election again, he feel winning his uh, re-election last year, he feels a little bit more comfortable to speak freely. And maybe he isn't calculating quite, quite so much as he used to. So he had that uh, remarkable exchange in Kentucky uh, recently, or was that, yeah, just last week when he was saying that corporations should, should stay out of politics. And of course, we know that he is a longtime proponent of uh, campaign finance, uh, uh, loose regulations so that corporations can very much be a part of politics. And so the next day he said that he would have chose his words more carefully. And I think that that maybe is something that McConnell maybe wouldn't have said a couple years ago, but now is feeling a little, a little bit more comfortable. He's almost 80 years old. What have you seen happen with McConnell under President Trump? He was a critical enabler of Trump, uh, ramming through judicial confirmations right up until the week before Election Day. And then he ends up in denouncing him in that remarkable speech on January 6th. I think ultimately he is concerned with maintaining his own power, maintaining his own legacy and the legacy of the Republican Party. And so to the end that Trump complicates that. And certainly after January 6th, he didn't see Trump as, as useful anymore to those end goals. He was expendable. But he, by his own admission, if Trump captures the Republican nomination in 2024, he will work with him again because those, if, if, he's, if he's who the party picks, McConnell's allegiance is to power and the party. But I think that he was quick to ditch him after January 6th because he was a liability at that point. I want to get your response to January 6th. The, the Capitol is many things, but among them, it's your workplace. Uh, and on that day, we saw the building filled with symbols of insurrection, of racism, of the Confederacy, uh, and the enduring image of an African-American police officer, Eugene Goodman, being chased through the halls of the Capitol and later hailed as a hero for deflecting the protesters from the Senate chamber. What was your emotional reaction to the January 6th? Well, I should mention I wasn't in the Capitol that day, but I, like many Americans, was watching it unfold on screen and, and you I live think, a few blocks away. Yes, I live a few blocks away. I feel as though, I think I felt a deep sense of betrayal and anger. I think that, and this is a, a sentiment that I share with some of the black female staffers that work for members of Congress on the Hill that I'm friends with. We have worked so hard to get into that space um, in terms of our education, fighting into, into getting into these schools, fighting to get these jobs, fighting to be in the room. And so being at the Capitol, none of us at least, we don't take that lightly because we work so hard to get there. And to see these people parade into this sacred chamber with the Confederate flag, they didn't earn that. 
They didn't earn the right to be there. They didn't earn the right to bust in. <laughs> and, and that is what made, I think, me and, I'll, and I'll, the, the, some of the people I'm close with so, so angry is that how dare you? We work so hard. <laughs> we work so hard to be here and you, you can just march on in and desecrate this place. And it, ju it, just, it just wasn't right. Do you feel less safe in that space working there now? I don't. I, I mean, there was for a long time, the place was a prison. It felt like a prison. The, the gates uh, or some of the fencing finally came down at the end of March. But I mean, I would have to show during the President Trump's second impeachment trial. I mean, I had to go through multiple checkpoints at like four in the morning when I was getting in. Uh, there was a, a huge gate with barbed wire and then that, you know you showed your, your credentials to the National Guard and then you went through and then again to Capitol Police. And so it was, it was, it was pretty in, intense. And so that has just started to come down. But no, I don't think that, I don't think that we'll see something to that scale again. But I mean, just on Good Friday, there was an, another attack. Officer Billy Evans lost his life. Oh gosh. And, and that was so, so heartbreaking. I covered his memorial service yesterday uh, at the Capitol. And so I, get, I guess anything could happen when you're working at such a high profile place. But no, for the most part, I do feel safe. Mm. Tell us a little bit about your journey, um, where you grew up, how you ended up in journalism. So I grew up in New York City on the Upper West Side of Manhattan. And I went to a predominantly white private school uh, called Birchwath and Lennox. It was on the Upper East Side. It was uh, through a program called Early Steps. So Early Steps, Prep for Prep, Oliver Scholars, it's, are these programs that allow uh, low-income folks of color to get into the pipeline. Early Steps is really early on from kindergarten. So I was at this private predominantly white, predominantly Jewish, actually high school, uh, school from kindergarten through 12th grade. And, you know, just a lot of the kids there lived very different lives, uh, home lives than me. They had houses in the Hamptons and, uh, and whatnot. And so I always felt, and some of this was my own perception. It's maybe in hindsight, not how I was treated, because I think in hindsight, I think people really, a lot of people did try to welcome me and make me feel as though I was equal, but a lot of it was internalized uh, now in hindsight, I believe. But, but I, I didn't feel as though I, I had a voice and I didn't feel as though the issues I really cared about were elevated in the, way, in the ways I wish, in, in, in the ways I wish. So I was in fourth grade, like talking about Rockefeller drug laws and meeting Al Sharpton and going to protests. <laughs> And so I quickly deduced that the people with the microphone, they had the biggest platform and that was the, the media. And not only could me as a, a dark skinned black woman who felt like I wasn't getting much attention in that setting, I wasn't viewed as beautiful or worthy is how I felt. Not only would I be able to get some of that, some of that shine uh, that I didn't feel like I was getting if I joined the media, but the issues that I cared about, I would also be able to elevate those too. And so that's why I, I gravitated towards this industry pretty early on. My first internship was at Essence Magazine at 16, and I was actually writing for the publication. 
So you go to Swarthmore College and then to Syracuse University for graduate school, the Newhouse School of Journalism, a fabled place in the journalism world that has produced many well-known media figures. Um, and then you get sent to Vermont, uh, your, one of your early jobs at WCAX 2015. And Vermont, of course, is not known for its diversity. Talk about what that experience in Vermont as a journalist was like for you. Well, gosh, I was, so I was going through a lot of growing pains, I think in general, in my late 20s. So I did a lot of growing up, I think in Vermont in many ways. But I, I loved living in this state. I, my mom actually got me in through, again, through a scholarship program to go to sleepaway camp in New Hampshire for six summers during the summer. And so the thought of being able to go to Vermont to work really was enticing and attractive to me because I remember what it was like in New Hampshire and how beautiful it was. And so when Anson uh, Tebbets, now the uh, agriculture secretary in Vermont, when he was the news director at WCAX at the time, when he invited me to come up to to be an anchor, I was thrilled because you have to think, I was in upstate New York, one man banding as a reporter, shooting, editing, and writing all my own stuff. And so to make the leap to the anchor desk was really exciting. And to do it in such a beautiful place, um, yeah, it was it was wonderful. And I I loved having the platform to be able to elevate voices of color. One of my favorite stories I did in Vermont was featuring the Clemens family farm, the black owned farm in Charlotte. And so I think that WCAX was really great in allowing me to, to bring on as many folks of color as I wanted to amplify their stories. And so I'm very appreciative of that journey. Hmm. You recently participated in a forum sponsored by Vermont Digger about uh, challenging the ways that women's voices are marginalized in the media. Talk about your own experience in that regard. Well, so what I said at the forum and what I very much believe is that by time we have these sort of superficial conversations about, oh, don't center away a woman looks or what she wears, which sometimes even women themselves who are journalists can, can fall into that trap, right? Because as women, so much of how we move through the world is about, unfortunately, is about how we present and how we look. And so I think unconsciously, even female journalists can fall into the accidental trap. And then I, I had to go back actually and look at myself and say, oh gosh, have I done that in my career? Uh, unknowingly, uh, but even before all of those, and I, those are worthy questions, is that think about all of the things that happen behind the scenes that don't even allow people like me to get in the room in the first place. You know, the media, business, politics, uh, a lot of nepotism a lot of who you know, a lot of where you went to school, a lot of who even brings you into the room in the first place. And so think about if I can't even get it, what if I couldn't even, I had a lot of things going for me. I had you know, aggressive parents that made sure that I went to certain schools and 
uh, I, I was always, always encouraged to network and be aggressive from a young age to get these opportunities. But it, it could have gone the other way, right? And so what, and if I didn't have that, there are so many people that look like me that don't even have the opportunity to, to be on this track, to get in the room. And I think those are, that's what we need, really need to look at. Because by the time you're talking about clothes and hair, it's like too late. Hmm. Who are some of your role models? Your sister, <laughs> Amy Goodman, <laughs> okay. who I love so, so much. And yeah, I'm a huge Democracy Now! fan. And I love the way people call her show progressive or, you know, refer to her as a progressive. But I really feel she gives equal as much hell to Democrats. And so sometimes I don't I don't think it's unfair to call her or I think sometimes it's it doesn't give the full story to call her a progressive. She's a fiercely independent journalist in that she just calls it calls everything out calls corporate Democrats out too. <laughs> I, I would agree with that characterization, fiercely independent. So she's who, one of my favorite people. Who else? Oh man, I really loved Soledad O'Brien's Black in America series back when she was at CNN when I was in college. So that was in like, that was around the time of like 27 to 2011, I was in college. And she came out with a series of long form stories. And I remember one summer I was interning at Ms. Magazine, the feminist magazine out in LA, the fame magazine started by Gloria Steinem. And I came back to my, I was living in a sorority house for the summer during my internship. And different women from different, uh, doing different internships were living in the house. And we saw Soledad's series and we were glued and we stayed up till two, three in the morning talking about black in America and what it meant to us and we were women of all races. And so th then the next night I was at an event at the Paley Media Center and I ran into her. <laughs> so I just thought it was fate. And I've always been a huge, huge fan of her no nonsense journalism. One of the uh, people who came onto my radar in the Trump era was April Ryan, uh, who I had not, I did not know of prior and all of a sudden this woman comes brawling out of the White House press corps, taking on the president in a way that almost no one had done. What kind of space does somebody like April Ryan open up when she takes on that role? Yeah, April Ryan is a total queen. I had the opportunity to meet her at the White House Correspondents' Dinner in 2019. She's awesome. And I think that she is unflappable and just has a, a long legacy here in Washington and asks important questions and is very, very well respected by the White House press corps. And I, I think, yeah, I think that certainly her unwavering spirit and her determination has definitely paved the way for other women and women of color to, to be, to ask the questions that need answers. What's your dream job? Oh gosh, I'd love to be able to travel around the country actually doing a long form video series that centers protest movements. Actually, Democracy Now! is one of the few places that consistently covers protests like in their headlines, no matter how small or large. 
And I think that a lot of these protests, even in places that don't make it into traditional media or legacy media really deserve, uh, really deserve attention, right? It's, it's, it's amazing when people can organize in even the smallest communities and that, that deserves to be amplified. So something where I'm covering policy and politics on a larger scale and I have a team of editors and photographers, that's, that's the dream. Hmm. Well, uh, if anybody can get there, I think it's you. So good luck on that, pursuing that dream. And thank you so much for joining us on the Vermont Conversation. Thank you. Eva McKend is a congressional correspondent for Spectrum News and a former anchor at WCAX-TV in Burlington.